welcome. You're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. The Apostle John, as you may know, was one of the original 12 disciples. He's referred to in John chapter 20 as the one Jesus loved, which is not a bad nickname to have. He was a prolific biblical author. He wrote a gospel. He wrote the last book of the Bible, Revelation. And he wrote three letters, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. And this week we are looking at 2 John in our long story short series. You may or may not recall that part of what we're trying to do in this series is take the shortest books in the Bible. And though they are short and though they condense down to just a few verses, they have a powerful message for us. I will tell you off the top that Second John is a tough book to read. It's a tough book to process. It's a tough book to try to figure out how this relates to life here in 2021, which is probably one of the reasons why it's a uh, ignored book. It's kind of a pushed aside book. There really isn't that much out there uh, to sort of dig into to find out what's actually going on in this book. And again, I think one of the reasons is, is because it's a bit far away from life in 2021. So let me kind of set this up a little bit. And you caught this when Emily began reading. John refers to himself right out of the gate of this letter as the elder. He says this in the opening verse of the letter. And that is significant because as we find out when we read along, he is going to play a, the role of a spiritual leader to his audience. He is going to bring a sense of passion and pastoral leadership. And so he refers to himself as the elder and he addresses this letter. And you may not have caught this, but he addresses it to the lady chosen by God and to her children whom I love in the truth. Now he is writing to a house church that is probably located in the big city of Ephesus. Um, And if he is writing to the leader of that church, don't really know if he is, but if he is writing to the leader of the church, then the leader is a woman. And that's just not a big point of what we're talking about today. But that's a significant thing. If he's writing this to a leader, he writes 3 John to one of the leaders of the church. If he's writing 2 John, then he's writing to a leader, or he's writing to a woman who is the leader of that church. An alternative view that some scholars hold is that what he's doing here, what John is doing, is he's reminding his readers that a local church is both the bride of Christ, so the lady, and a local church is a family. Either way you look at it, however you want to interpret it, the children to whom this letter is addressed are the people who were in this particular congregation that John is writing this letter to. So 2 John is actually a personal letter to a particular congregation, and it addresses a specific crisis that was facing this congregation. And this is the crisis. People have been leaving the church, and they've been going out into the world, is the way that John puts it. And they have been preaching what we might call a pseudo-gospel that does not acknowledge that Jesus actually came in the flesh. John says it this way in verse 7. He says, Many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Now, step back for a second. Compared to 
someone like the Apostle Peter, at least in my mind, the Apostle John has always seemed more civil, a little more level-headed, a little gentler than Peter. But in 2 John, the Apostle John holds nothing back, and he full-on attacks those who are distorting the Christian gospel. This pseudo-gospel, just to kind of feel it, is being preached by former members of this church. And this pseudo-gospel they're preaching does not include Jesus coming as God in the flesh to live, teach, die, and rise again. It, it, it's this idea that God became flesh in the person of Jesus that is being distorted by these preachers who are going out. So these false teachers are now trying to gain converts to their view, and they're trying to gain them out of their former church that they were a part of. So this local congregation house church in the city of Ephesus is at the risk of dividing over this issue. It's under pressure from this crisis, and this pressure is threatening its very existence. Now, again, it's a little bit difficult to go, okay, I'm having trouble relating to that. Let me try and make it a little more relatable. Imagine a group of people from Oak Hills that most of us knew, most of us cared for, most of us loved. They were involved in our life together here at Oak Hills. And imagine that this group were to leave Oak Hills and commit to a, quote, gospel that didn't involve Jesus. And then imagine that they tried to recruit people to their new thing right out of our congregation here and imagine some people are thinking, you know, maybe they're right. Maybe that is really more the gospel. You can just kind of feel if that were to go down, all of a sudden there'd be this spirit of division in our midst or the winds of division at least would be blowing through here. So there was conflict all of a sudden. There's disagreement that would be threatening to split us. We'd have conversations on a regular basis about, well, what do you think of this? And what do you think of that? And why did that person leave? And where did that person go? Well, this is basically what's happening here in Second John. Now, there were all sorts of heresies in the early days of Christianity, just like there are heresies today. And this particular heresy was known as docetism, D-O-C-E-T-I-S-M. It comes from a Greek word that means to appear or to seem. And the teaching of this was that Jesus seemed to be human, but he really wasn't. He appeared to have a physical body, but he really didn't. And so this teaching denied what we call the incarnation or what we celebrate at Christmas, the coming of Jesus in the flesh. The roots of this idea are in Greek philosophy. It's not that important to get into all that, but it has to do with this idea that the spiritual is superior to the physical. And the physical is bad, the spiritual is good, so we downplay the physical, ignore the physical, ignore the world, ignore our bodies, because the higher plane is the spiritual. That's the gist of where this sort of comes from. And John writes to this local congregation, and he writes with strong and unsettling words about how they should handle all this. So this local church is under siege, in the words of one commentator. And some scholars believe, and this is where this starts to kind of hit home a bit. Some scholars believe, many scholars believe, that this church ultimately did not survive. That the division that had crept in eventually destroyed this. But really, let's step back. I mean, who cares? 
what happened in 90 AD in some small house church in Ephesus. What's this got to do with life or with church right here in 2021? Why would the Spirit of God preserve this short letter about this specific situation facing this local congregation for subsequent generations like ours to sit around and reflect upon it? Well, I don't, I'm sure I don't have the full answer to that, but a few ideas come to mind that are worth considering as we think about this letter. And one is, this letter reminds us that a local church is fragile, vulnerable, and needs to be handled with care. It's good for us every now and then to just step back and remember this. Oak Hills, in this case, what we're going to focus on a bit here today since we are a local church, Oak Hills is not primarily an organization. It's not primarily a business. It's not primarily an institution. Remember the metaphors in the New Testament for the church, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the family of God. And so the church is a living and dynamic organism initiated by Jesus, established by Jesus, sustained by the power of God. So in one sense, as Matthew 16 tells us, the church is unstoppable and robust. But in another sense, as implied in 2 John, or countless real-life examples verify this, a local church, just like a family, just like a body, is fragile and vulnerable. And it needs to be handled with great care. I love what John says near the end of this short letter in verse 12. He says, I have much to write to you, but I do not want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. I mean, it's a perfect verse for a pandemic where we've been so isolated from each other for so long, been unable to meet face to face. John is offering incredible wisdom just in this single verse. He's saying this whole thing that we're dealing with in this church is complicated and it's hard and it's really tough to deal with all the pain and all the nuances through a letter, or we might say a text message or an email. So he says, I want to be with you, where we can hear each other out and we can sort this out together. He's talking to the church, not to those who have left. He's saying to the leaders of the church and the people of the church, I want to come and be with you so we can process this out face to face. It's not a coincidence that a group of people are running around claiming Jesus didn't come in the flesh. And John says to this church, point blank, he says, I want to come and see you in the flesh. I want to be with you so we can sort this out together. So we're reminded again of the importance of incarnational relationships in the life of a church, face-to-face, -face, being with. And just to say it, this is one of our most important and rising values at Oak Hills. And one, we want to continue to find ways to prioritize for this reason. When ideas get divorced from relationships, they become driven by our own incomplete and often dysfunctional narratives. When ideas get pulled away from relationships, they start swirling around in our mind. We start coming up with stories and ways of interpreting things, and those things are often driven by our own incomplete 
and perhaps even dysfunctional narratives. Our version of the story takes over, in other words, and our version of the story is rarely the whole story. Now, obviously, COVID has made relationship difficult, but I want to keep this value right out in front of us. The strength of our church is in our relationships. It's not in our program. It's not in our events. It's not in some fancy thing we're trying to pull off to impress people. The strength of the church is in our relationships, in our connectedness, in our togetherness, in our awareness that we are a body and every part matters. Our awareness that we're a family and every person matters. We're in this together. So that's one takeaway from this short letter. Here's a second one. The truth is not a weapon but a way of life centered in Jesus. Five times in the first few verses of this book, John uses the word truth. It's clearly one of the primary themes of this letter. But John talks about truth in what I find to be a rather uncommon way. We may think and talk about the truth as a set of beliefs or as a list of abstract propositions we adhere to or uphold. Sometimes Christians talk about the truth almost like it is a weapon to wield against those who don't subscribe to it. And sometimes Christians see their relationship with the truth as primarily being a guardian of it and a protector of it. Have you noticed this? The focus for many Christians as it relates to the truth has moved from abiding in the truth, living in the truth, and allowing the Spirit of God to reshape us by the truth, all of which are themes in Second John, toward defending and preserving the truth as if this was our primary responsibility. And you know this as well as I do. Along the way, we've gotten pretty good at speaking the truth not in love, but speaking the truth with meanness and with judgment. But in 2 John and in the Bible in general, the truth is not a weapon like this. In fact, the truth is not a list of propositions. When we think of the truth, the simplest and most profound thing to think about is reality. If you're looking for what does the truth mean in Scripture, simple way to think of it is it means reality. The truth is about reality that has been revealed through the person and the life and the teaching and the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. So let me reread the beginning of this letter. To the lady chosen by God and to her children whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, will be with us in truth and love. It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth just as the Father commanded us. John almost personifies the truth. The truth is a dynamic force in those who are in Christ. Verse 4, it has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth just as the Father commanded us. That picture of walking is a picture and a word in the Bible that is used to talk about living one moment after another, in this case, in the truth. And so the truth is the way things actually are. The truth is reality. Biblical truth is reality, whether we acknowledge, agree, or align with it. 
And this reality John is talking about is intimately and inseparably centered in the person of Jesus Christ, who came in the flesh and dwelt among us. He came in the flesh to show us who God is. He came in the flesh to show us this is what God is really like, who came in the flesh to show us here's how you live to its fullest. Reality, in other words, is revealed through Jesus Christ. That's a big deal. That's like high stakes. And this is why John is so aggressive toward those who are now out proclaiming that Jesus did not actually come in the flesh or that he was not fully human or that he only appeared to be human and only seemed to have a body. Think about it. What's a crucifixion without a body? He didn't really suffer because he didn't really have a body. Some other ethereal spiritual thing was going on. So where does that leave us with regard to a sacrifice for sins? What's a resurrection without a body? If his body did not come back from the dead, then what actual power does he have over death? What is life without a body? And if the one we follow didn't have a body and wasn't really a physical being, and he's living and showing us how to live, how is that even meaningful since we do have bodies and all the limitations that come with it? John says of those who do not acknowledge Jesus coming in the flesh, because this is so important, here's what he says. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. And then in verses 10 and 11, he says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching of Jesus being in the flesh, do not take them into your house. Don't let them come into your house church. Don't let them teach at the gathering of your house church. Don't welcome them in your house because anyone, he says, who welcomes them shares in their wicked work. I don't know about you, but that's tough words coming from a dude that I've always thought of as kind of gentle and civil. But John is extremely intolerant of those who want to move Jesus away from center stage. And maybe that's the point for us to think about. He's intolerant because John knows reality begins and ends with Jesus. Think about what he says in Revelation. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. John knows reality begins and ends with Jesus. And let's make sure we're on the same page here. Not religious reality, not spiritual reality, but reality. All of it begins and ends with Jesus. This is the thrust of second John, which is why John is saying, you mess with Jesus, you're messing with the whole deal. So Jesus is coming to live in the flesh, his teachings, his encounters with the forgotten of his time, his sacrifice of his body and his life at the cross, the resurrection of his body from the dead, his ascension in his transformed body, back to his father, his ongoing and present life right now. All of this proclaims the truth about 
reality. See, one of the primary ministries Jesus had while he walked this earth was to disrupt the various systems human beings constructed to put themselves center stage and at least attempt to redefine reality. This was one of Jesus's main ministries, to disrupt people who were trying to change reality and make themselves the center of it. He constantly disrupted in order to reorder people to his reality, the way things actually were. Jesus was always trying to show people who God actually was, the way life was actually supposed to be lived, and ultimately the way love was central in the story. Jesus redefines reality. Some people are power hungry and they wield their power over others, but I came to serve, not to be served. Redefining reality. At the Last Supper, he took off his outer robe and he went and he washed his disciples' feet. And when he was finished, he said, what I've done for you here, you now go and do for others. And in doing so, he redefined reality. Greater love has no one than this, than he lays down his life for his friends. And in saying this, and then doing it, he shows his disciples and us, this is what ultimate reality is about. This is the way to follow God, to sacrifice yourself for others. When the father saw his prodigal son returning home, he ran to him and embraced him and kissed him and threw a party on his behalf. You don't think that that story was rattling the cages of the realities people thought they had figured out about who God was? While Jesus' body was suffering through the final moments of his life, he looked down upon his own murderers and he said, Father, Forgive them because they don't realize what they're doing. Then he looked over at a career criminal who was dying right next to him. And he said, today, you'll be with me in paradise. You talk about, wait a minute, what? This is reality? He stared in the face of a shame-drenched adulterer who was minutes away from being a heap of blood on the ground. And he said there, where are your accusers? Now go and sin no more. He looked in the face of a powerful Roman leader who held his life in his own hand and he said these words, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight. Reality. Wait a minute. If my kingdom was like your kingdom, then my servants would do what yours do which is draw the sword and fight. But my kingdom is not from or of this world. And then he said to this same Roman ruler, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Sounds like a big deal. This is getting this up and away from kind of a token little nod at this guy, Jesus. This is getting up to, wait a minute. This sounds like life is shaped by this guy. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. 
He came to disrupt systems and reveal reality. And everyone who cares about reality is or is interested in reality listens to Jesus. Wow. Again, apparently Jesus is kind of a big deal. You know, sometimes we think that those who need the truth or who need reality are outside the faith. And certainly plenty do. I'm not arguing that. But when we camp in this mindset and think, boy, they need the truth, we end up settling for being guardians and protectors and defenders of the truth instead of ourselves being in submission to the truth and being shaped and reordered by the truth. You see how that goes? When we spend too much energy, they need the truth. They're getting away from truth. Our culture doesn't care about truth anymore, all of which has a lot of truth in it. But when we settle there, we end up becoming guardians and protectors and defenders of the truth instead of being shaped and reordered by the truth. And I think the people who need a fresh encounter with the truth, as we're talking about it here, are those of us who are in the faith and those of us who are in the church. So let me read from one person who is a Christian, but like many Christians these days, particularly younger Christians, this person's in the process of rethinking faith. This person is trying to rediscover the truth. I just want to read their words. He writes, many who were raised in the church are going through a deeply difficult period of deconstructing and reconstructing their faith right now. I am part of that category. Being a perpetual student of faith is vitally important to me. One of the biggest fears of those who see someone deconstructing is to assume they are abandoning truth or being shaped by the world. It is important for others to understand that for those who are deconstructing and reconstructing their faith, faith is the goal. You don't take the time to deconstruct something that you want to abandon. Support and understanding are needed rather than assumptions and fear. It is not the Bible or Christianity we are questioning. It is, the it is the tradition, cultural worldview, and dogma in which we have received the Bible in Christianity that is often at the center of our deconstruction and reconstruction. For many right now, we aren't trying to abandon Christianity. We are trying to reclaim Christianity from fundamentalism and nationalism. This is a difficult, heartbreaking, and grievous process, not something approached with flippancy. It truly is an identity crisis. The question for us as the church is, will we be comfortable with the tensions people are trying to reconcile right now? Do we want people deconstructing their faith inside or outside the church? Deconstruction is going to happen for many no matter what. Why not do it together as a compassionate community rather than on our own? And I simply say, I completely agree. Second John drives home a simple point. The truth is found in Jesus. The truth is embodied in Jesus. Reality is revealed through Jesus. You want to know God? Follow Jesus. You want to know how to live life to its fullest? Follow Jesus. You want to know what love is? Follow Jesus. You want to know how to respond to insults? how to respond to attacks, how to respond to hardships, how to respond when you're hurt, 
follow Jesus. You want to learn how to forgive someone who's hurt you? Follow Jesus. Continuing, continue in the teaching of Christ, as John says it, and reality will continue to be revealed. Third and last thing that jumps out from this is that love is the primary truth we are to live out and uphold. I want you to think about that. Love is the primary truth we are to live out and uphold. Let me change that just slightly. You want to defend something? You want to protect something? You want to guard something? Then defend, protect, and guard the priority of love flowing out of the follower of Jesus. Love is the second big theme in 2 John, verses 5 and 6. I'm not writing you a new command, but one we have had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another, and this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. And remember, John, the guy who wrote this, was with Jesus when Jesus says, I give you a new command to love one another. Truth without love is abusive. Love without truth is permissive. And if we continue in the teaching of Christ, as John instructs us to, we will grow in love for God, we'll grow in love for one another, and we will grow in love for those who do not know who Jesus is or why he matters. And the Apostle Paul melds together these two great themes of truth and love in Ephesians 4.15 when he says, Speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. Beautiful statement. Now, I realize John goes on the attack in this letter, calls these renegades deceivers and antichrists, and I get it, but I want to say something to you that hopefully helps us recognize how we come to the Bible and how we use the Bible and how we don't come to the Bible and how we don't use the Bible. See, John must have had the kind of inner life and heart that could handle calling people these kinds of names without crossing the line to hatred or elitism or arrogance. He must have had an inner being that could do that. I'm telling you, I don't. I don't have the kind of inner life that can handle that kind of aggressive attack, meaning I don't have it within me to handle that well. I can't do that without hurting someone, without getting my own self in trouble. So I should not use what I read in 2 John as a biblical basis for judgment or attack on those I don't agree with. I should not do that. See, I don't know how to grow in love and call people names. I'm speaking autobiographically here. I don't know how to grow in love and berate and belittle those who are different than I am. I don't know how to do that. Now, I certainly fall into calling people names and berating and belittling people on a regular basis, but I got to tell you something. I never come out the other end of one of these ranting episodes feeling like I have loved well, ever. So I end this message where I began. I've watched this happen countless times, and I've personally done this countless times. When I'm isolated from others, when I'm detached from others, 
when I'm content to squabble over ideologies that are divorced from actual living, breathing people and incarnational flesh-on-flesh -flesh relationships. That is, when I just allow myself to live in this land of ideology, that I'm at the mercy of my distorted and dysfunctional thoughts, feelings, and narratives, and love becomes nearly impossible for me. But when I'm up close to others, particularly with those that I don't agree with or I don't align with, when I'm up close to them, when I am with others in the midst of their messiness and my messiness, when I begin to see my own brokenness in other people and I learn the empathy that grows in mutual brokenness, then love becomes very possible. And the reality of the kingdom of God I think is close at hand when that happens. So we've been given out or suggesting some practices to engage in uh, in these weeks in between, and I have two for you today. And the first is to read Third John this week, encouraging people to be in this stuff before we come together, to read it a couple times and reflect on it. And here's the other practice I'd like to encourage you on this week. One of the things that, that I was left with when I was finished with all this is the magnificence and the magnitude of Jesus. Just a big deal. So you might want to write this down. It's in your app. Uh, you don't even have to write it down. It's in the app. Um, but I'd encourage you to return to this thought throughout the week many times during the day. And here's what it is. The most important thing I will do today is live out the way of Jesus in everything I do. And just sit in that, return to that, and live in that this week. Would you pray with me, please? Lord Jesus Christ, we gather together here in this beautiful day as broken, wayward, sometimes lonely, hurting, struggling people, but people who recognize that you have taken the initiative to bring us to yourself and healing has begun. Forgive us our sins, forgive us our waywardness, forgive us the ways in which we take matters into our own hands. We confess that we do this. We confess that we listen far too closely to the narratives in our own minds. So we come to you as a people today, as a church, and we pray that your truth, your reality, would shape us, would refine us, and that we would align with who you are, with how you are, and with your way. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.